I don't do this very often. Um, it just so happens that two Sundays in a row, I have a personal story that I want to share. And I hope that you will agree that it fits in with the message. So I'm just going to get right into it. When Jim went into business for himself, he would often spend the mornings at home doing estimates, getting subs lined out for the day, ordering supplies or whatever it was he needed to do paperwork-wise at home before he left the house. And since I had already transitioned on my job uh, onto the work from home program, I was also at home. He would be in his, in his office in the front part of the house, and I would be in my office in the back part of the house. Normally, I started before he did, because he had to wait for the you know, lumber yards and whatever, and I was on calls with other countries from early in the morning. He took it upon himself to begin making my morning tea, my Japanese green tea with toasted rice, in a French press pot, glass French press pot that he had given me as a gift. And he made my tea faithfully every morning when he was home. And if he had to leave before he thought I was ready to drink it, he would measure the tea out in the pot, put the plunger beside it, and then leave it there on the counter for me to fill up with the hot water when I was ready. I really did love and appreciate this gesture because for one thing, the French press is kind of a mechanical thing. You have to put all these parts and pieces and it has a screw you have to screw down onto it. So I didn't know how to operate it and he did. And also, he never let me see how much tea he put in the pot. After a while, the timing of this got a little difficult. So I said, why don't you just teach me how to do it? I'm not that dumb that I can't figure out how to screw three little pieces and put the nut and the bolt in there and show me how much tea you use. Well, that began a long battle of the wills. He would not show me how to do the plunger, nor would he tell me how much tea he put in the pot. He said, it's my little secret and I'm not telling you. I'm not making this up. Well, this just made me madder and more mad and more mad to the point that such a beautiful, sweet action on his part, gesture on his part, became a bone of contention in my heart. The more I begged and pushed, the more closed and stubborn and resistant he became. Now, wives, don't be looking at your husbands. You know, that's not the purpose of this. <laughs> One time we went on a road trip and he said, I'm going to take the tea in the teapot for you. And I said, okay, great. But the glass carafe got broken. So he ran out to the store. I think we were in, I don't know, Mendocino or Fort Bragg or somewhere up north where it was cold and foggy and beautiful like we liked it. So he ran out and got a new one, and it was a different brand, and I'm in there messing with it, trying to see, 
It just, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to do it. So when we got home, I decided this is ridiculous. I'm a grown woman, I've had two kids, how many grandkids by this time? I can figure this out. So I went on to the source of all knowledge, YouTube, and I watched videos on how to put the plunger together and what was the recommended amount of tea for the pot, stands about that tall about three and a half cups, and it would take me a couple of hours to drink the tea every morning. I never let him knew, or never let him know, that I knew how to do this. And he kept making it as often as he could. But the Lord began dealing with my heart, and I had to pray for grace, double grace, Grace to forgive him for not teaching me and telling me how to do this after I had begged him a hundred times. And grace for the humility to ask the Lord to forgive me for my part in nagging and pushing and begging him and making it a bone of contention in my heart. After he was no longer mobile, and it was nearing the end of his life, we had one discussion about things that he missed the most through the illness and the time that he was incapacitated. And he told me how much he missed making my tea every morning. And I told him how much I missed him making my tea every morning. He never asked me, are you doing it yourself? Of course I was. But I can tell you to this day, his tea tasted much better than mine. Forgiveness is the point. I forgave him, but I needed forgiveness as well. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the church member in the um, fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians who was living a sinful life and the Apostle Paul told the leadership of the church, you have to put him out of the body. You cannot let him stay here because that leaven, that sin could permeate the church and destroy the whole body. You have to put him out and dis disassociate yourselves completely. How many of you remember this? You can't have fellowship with sin. And that's exactly what happened. The action of disassociating him and the action of pushing him away from the body allowed the Holy Spirit to work in his heart and the Bible says that he came to his senses and repented. Well, now we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because here Paul realizes there's another issue that he needs to address. Chapter 2, we're going to start reading verse 6. Sufficient 
to a man is this punishment, the punishment of being pushed aside, which was inflicted of many. The church was in agreement with each other. They must do this. So that, contrary-wise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Paul is telling the church, the Lord did his work, and now it's time to restore this man back to fellowship of the believers, that they must in love demonstrate and draw him back in and intentionally forgive him, lest he would be overcome with such despondency. Verse 8, wherefore I beseech you, in other words, I'm begging you, please, that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end did I also write that I might know the proof of you whether you are obedient in all things. Paul saying now you have a responsibility. Bring him back into the fold. Love him. Comfort him. Restore him. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's another issue. Is the church being obedient in this command? And so Paul saying to this end, did I also write that I might know of you the proof of whether you are obedient? Paul told him, told them to confirm their love, show it, prove it, not just passively allowing him to come back in, but make him a part. What a clear teaching this is within the body of Christ. But Paul didn't leave it there because of his motive being twofold. Not only his care and concern for the welfare and the emotional stability of the man, but also for the proving of the saints of God that they were the extension of the body of Christ and were actively loving and forgiving this man and were being obedient in the action of restoration. Verse 10, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. <clears throat> for if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I, in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The New Living, New Living Translation says that verse this way. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too, Paul says. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with the authority of Christ for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us because we are familiar with his evil schemes. 
Paul knew that unforgiveness toward the man would destroy him eventually, and he would lose all hope of redemption in Christ. But he also knew that unforgiveness, unchecked in the body of Christ, could cause even worse damage among the Christians than what could be caused to the man. For then, Satan would have a wide open door to put his ugly foot in and to use it as a stronghold to destroy that body. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, still reading in the New Living Translation, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently. Let me read that again. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. For we are a dreadful smell of death and doom to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. The question today is, what do we smell like to God? What do we smell like to the world? Do we reek of death and condemnation to the perishing? Or do we smell like a sweet perfume in the nostrils of God and those who are being saved and forgiven? Don, if maybe you and Doug could handle the passing out of the uh, elements. Finally, if you would turn to Leviticus chapter 2, I'm going to read two scriptures there. Leviticus 2, 1 and 2. A meat offering was any type of a food offering. It was not animal flesh, even though it was called meat. The animal flesh offerings were described in chapter 1 as a burnt offering. So God established in this chapter how each of the offerings were to be prepared and exactly how they were to be offered within the service. A portion was to be kept by the one making the offering, a portion for the priest, and a portion for God. Leviticus 2.1 And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. So this obviously is not animal meat. It is a meat offering meeting food. And it shall be fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put the frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, Verse 2, I'll read again. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take out therefore thereof a handful of the flour 
and of the oil thereof, and all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Jehovah had specified exactly how he wanted these offerings to be made in perfection and in strict obedience to his preparation process and in the service of the, of the sacrifice. And the sacrifice itself had to be worthy. It had to be a fine flour. It had to be the right oil and the frankincense spice. It was a sweet smelling memorial to God because it met all these requirements. Why was the process so controlled? Why? Was it because the offerer was perfect or righteous? Of course it was not. No, it was a sweet smelling savor to God because the offering symbolized Jesus Christ, his son. <clears throat> the perfect offering for the forgiveness of sin, even the sin of unforgiveness for the eternal life of each believer, for our healing and for our restoration. As we take this communion this morning, I don't wanna lose sight of how important forgiveness is within the body of Christ and by contrast, how deadly the sin of unforgiveness is. Paul told the Corinthians, don't take communion lightly or unworthily, <clears throat> but to take it soberly by examining their own heart. And that's what I would suggest this morning, that we search our own hearts for any trace of unforgiveness that we may have as a church body or that we may have as an individual and ask God to wash it away with his blood so that we are not leaving an open door for Satan to come through with his evil ways and enter in among us either as a body or as an individual. We don't want that destruction. So, Lord, we say this morning, search our hearts and bring out any unforgiveness, Lord, that we may have hidden in our hearts and purge it far, far from us and set us free by your blood. Wash us clean and make us pure and holy and worthy of your body and your blood. Now, having been cleaned, by the forgiving power of Christ, because we just asked him to forgive us, we can take the bread and the cup worthily and soberly in remembrance of Jesus' broken body. Let's take it now. And now we take this cup also worthily because of the saving and forgiving power of Jesus in remembrance of your blood that was spilled for our own forgiveness. 
It's always easy to look at somebody else and said, they're carrying a grudge, but what about our own hearts? What about our own status of being able to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and it be a sweet smelling savor? Lord, we don't wanna be guilty of leaving an open door for Satan. Let's take the cup now. Would you stand with me? Father, we're so thankful and grateful. We're humbled, Lord, in your presence. We're humbled, Lord, to know that we are not beyond the sin of unforgiveness being harbored in our hearts, nor are we beyond as a body of Christ having unforgiveness for those who may have hurt us at some point in time. Oh, but we're so thankful that we can stand upon your promise that if we ask, you are quick to erase that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask that you accept this sacrifice of remembrance this morning, that you accept it and it be a sweet, smelling savor in your nostrils. And Father, we ask by the power of the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit that sealed us unto the day of redemption, that Satan has no power, no foothold, no stronghold here, Lord, that we are clean and cleansed and protected by your blood in Jesus' name. And Father, we ask that you go with each and every one as we go from this place as that covering and that banner over us, Lord, for your banner is love. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in your wonderful son, Jesus' name. Amen and amen.